Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Um, and this week, I'm really pleased to have on my fellow on the NatCon Squad podcast. But more importantly, Ben Weingarten is editor-at-large over at Real Clear Investigations. Um, he's a senior contributor to The Federalist. You may have seen his work over at Newsweek or the Epoch Times. Um, but he, he is really good at doing these deep dives into... It seems like there's just been a series of stories that require an enormous amount of specific knowledge to even start to understand what the important themes are to pull out of it. And here, I mean, I think this all kind of started with with Russiagate in terms of having to know um, and having like a very, very high barrier to actually understand what's going on with these stories. But just in the last week and a half, um, there have been a series of both hearings and like information released on topics that might seem slightly unrelated at first, but I want you to go through them. And then I think we'll see how they, they really, they tie together a picture of how our government, how our society, how the regime actually works today, as opposed to a kind of bill on Capitol Hill constitutional Republic um, sort of fantasy uh, that that many still cling to. So um, those stories, let's start with January 6th and the tapes that were released to Tucker Carlson. And then we'll talk about um, the Twitter files hearings and the, the, the COVID origin hearings in Congress. Um, and, and we'll move on from there. But it, it just seems like so much about the actual functioning of our government and our society has come out just in the last couple weeks. So let's start with um, with January 6th. What is shown on the tapes that were released um, and what are the implications? Yeah, well, a few of the points that Tucker Carlson highlighted. And first of all, as you said, thanks. uh, Thanks for that introduction. And I think you're right, by the way, to point to Russian interference in elections and Trump Russia as certainly an accelerant at very minimum to this overarching effort that will hopefully elucidate here. But what Tucker Carlson has basically charged is look, here's a narrative that's been put forth about January 6th, literally stage managed by corporate media executives via the Jan 6 committee, and those who want to use January 6th to claim that roughly up to half the country constitutes the ultimate threat to the homeland. And you see that with the rhetoric immediately following January 6th from top Democrats about how January 6th was on the level of a 9-11 or the depths of the Civil War, Pearl Harbor or the like, which is a euphemistic way of saying MAGA equals Al-Qaeda or could equal Al-Qaeda or the Nazis or the Confederates. And thus, we ought to consider pursuing them accordingly. And so this notion that this was an insurrection where democracy or really the republic hung in the balance uh, was already challenged factually when you look at the fact that there have been no insurrection charges imposed. Ultimately, they did file charges for uh, seditious conspiracy about a year into the prosecutions or the persecutions, depending on your perspective, of many of the defendants associated with January 6th. But there are a few kind of core narratives. One is, you know, that this was an armed insurrection that got officers killed. Another is um, that, you know, essentially this was massively violent and there were Uh, huge swaths of assaults. And there were over 100 people charged with assault, to be clear. But out of a thousand plus people who have been charged, out of tens of thousands of people who were actually in Washington, D.C. that day. uh, Another point is Ray Epps. Who is this Ray Epps? The only person on video basically calling to storm the Capitol the day before January 6th. And then who did storm the Capitol on January 6th was that basically the front of the barricades when they were originally breached And why is this guy feted and treated as a hero by Democrats when he seems like the ultimate insurrectionist and you can't dismiss the tape? So there are all these sort of points, you know, insurrectionists armed, uh, engaged in a massive assault on the Capitol and that this was, you know, one of the darkest days in American history. And so consequently, the takeaway is we now have to engage in a domestic war on terror to root out these elements with some really beyond over the top rhetoric and policies to match it subsequently. What Tucker showed in these videos were a few things. One, QAnon shaman, who was sort of the face of the insurrection, is depicted in these videos basically being walked around different parts of the Capitol by the police, seemingly acting courteously and respectfully, not destroying anything, and clearly not being thrown out or handcuffed or anything like that. 
Uh, and yet this is a person who was sentenced to, I believe, around four years in prison and who served for many months in pretrial detention. Uh, and he's one of many people, dozens of individuals who have served in pretrial detention, in some instances for many, many months, if not over a year, in horrific conditions, putatively because of COVID-related restrictions. Um, and their mistreatment has been exposed in certain cases, and in some cases, defendants have even been pulled out of prison. Um, so QAnon Shaman is sort of the face of the insurrection, you know, treated as the literal personification of the insurrectionism in this country. And what we see is that this guy got basically four years in prison for what looks like walking through the Capitol, uh, escorted by Capitol Police. And that raises significantly more questions about, you know, the most vigorous investigative and prosecutorial effort, according to Merrick Garland, that there's ever been in U.S. history and the methods and means used to pursue these th now over a thousand defendants. And there have been rumors that there are going to be a thousand more charged ultimately. So, you know, so we're talking now multiple years after the events that occurred. Um, so another aspect of this is, you know, was Officer Brian Sicknick bludgeoned to death by insurrectionists? And we've known that to be false for many months. Uh, but the video shows that essentially even after the initial point of contact with protesters, that he was still operating freely around the Capitol. And there continues to be essentially this blood libel around a January 6th defendant that these people murdered Capitol cops. Uh, and, you know, kind of this over the top uh, hysterical responses defending Brian Sicknick, um, which is just a sick and twisted way of exploiting a person's death, by the way, sickening in and of itself. Uh, when in reality, of course, as we know, that the only people to die that day uh, were January 6th participants, uh, namely Ashley Babbitt, shot by a Capitol cop, whose record shows uh, that he had engaged in uh, misconduct or violated policies previously. And he essentially got off without even a slap on the wrist with respect to his shot on January 6th. And another question that raised is, if he was acting appropriately, why was Ashley Babbitt the only person shot? There were lots of other people there marauding in the Capitol. Um, you know, go, to go back briefly to QAnon Shaman, also the notion of the charges associated with these individuals, which the tapes kind of inadvertently get at, you know, most people were charged with essentially glorified trespassing or in some instances, obstruction of an official proceeding and obstruction of, of an official proceeding, as Julie Kelly has noted, is a Sarbanes-Oxley related law, never applied in an analogous circumstance like this. All of these points, you know, raise questions. The last one uh, also, Ray Epps, apparently, it seems, may have perjured himself because he claimed he, I think, was not within the Capitol at a certain time. The tape show he was. So these are the few, a few of the takeaways from the Tucker Carlson tapes. We'll see if we end up getting access to the 40,000 plus hours of January 6th footage, which Kevin McCarthy has kind of promised are going to be let out over time. Defendants and their lawyers apparently are now going to be able to access this footage. And it's remarkable, by the way, that they have not had access to all this footage uh, when you've had so many cases already disposed of. And was there exculpatory evidence within those videos that you know, defendants never were able to avail themselves of and make their cases? So all of these questions are raised and they strike at core contentions about the size, scope and nature of what transpired on January 6th, whether it justifies the heavy handed tactics and then you know, the ballooning, the inflation of the domestic terrorism threat purportedly by ethnically motivated violent extremists, which is euphemism for essentially uh, anyone who holds views that kind of flout the overarching you know, ruling class sort of narrative. And January 6th is the linchpin, is sort of the jumping off point. As I put it in an article a week after January 6th occurred, th this would be the accelerant for a massive war on wrong think on this country. And it's proven out in a whole slew of institutions purging anyone and any ideas that conflict with established narratives with respect to January 6th, most importantly, on you know, questions about election integrity in this country, which, by the way, is what the members of Congress were going to be discussing that day. And they were subverted by uh, the quote unquote insurrectionists in making that case to the public. Um, yeah, so it's it's interesting. So our, our colleague, um Emily Jashinsky was doing reporting outside of the Capitol. And, and as far as I can tell, 
which is is difficult because as you say many of the hours of this are not of the video are not shown um and what we had known up to this point of the release of the video were videos from one side for the most part of the capital and there were these sort of confusing or contradictory videos or seemingly so from the other side of the capital right so on on the one hand we see we have these videos of so let's call it the ashley babbitt side of the capital right where it's very clear there are videos of people smashing windows and they're like actively breaking into the Capitol as part of a riot, right? And then on the other hand, we have videos from other parts of the Capitol where the police apparently did open up the barriers and essentially, um, I don't even want to use the word escort so much as just like, they just let people in and then walked around next to them to keep trying to keep an eye on them, like trying to kind of gently talk them out of doing, you know, <laughs> what they were trying to do, but by no means like actively aggressively stopping them. Right. Um, and, and so that definitely pr- presents a different picture of, of what happened in different sides of the Capitol. Um, but I want to pull out a few, a few uh, sort of larger questions out of this. One, there, there is the question of the rule of law. Obviously this happened after an entire summer of rioting in various other places all across America, cities across America. I mean, I remember standing in D.C. and literally seeing um, a whole series of fires right from my roof um, just lit across the city. And that was before this. This was during the summer of 2020. Um, And and there were many cities, most notably Kenosha, but uh, many cities experienced the same thing. So after an entire summer of rioting that produced very little in the way of law enforcement, most recently, the the two, I think they were um, attorneys who who threw a Molotov cocktails at cop cars, um, they got a slap on the wrist, right? They got a very light sentence for something that could be classified as domestic terrorism, um, right? Throwing Molotov cocktails at the police. so there was this this very low and light prosecution for rioting all through the summer. And then there was January 6th. And we not only have prosecution, we have very long, unusually long pretrial detention for a lot of these folks that, that the process has become its own punishment right before guilt or innocence is even adjudicated. Um, and now we have this sense um, or, or we have this, this information that's come out that they were actually not, their their defense was not allowed access to the tapes that presumably the prosecution had. I mean, that raises prosecution, raises constitutional questions about their prosecution and whether um, they, their, their defense should have had access to some of these tapes that seem if, if not to completely, you know, destroy any case against them, at least ameliorate the case and perhaps, you know, would have been able to be used by their attorneys to negotiate for a lower sentence and so on. So all of this calls into question um, something that's extremely fundamental, which is, you know, is, is the rule of law in America blind to your politics? I think the answer is the blindfolds have long gone. Um, and, you know, that's illustrated as you raise, you know, very starkly, I think. And obviously you can go to the Washington Post and they've written articles, you know, trying to make the opposite case that actually, in fact, you know, BLM... Antifa summer 2020 rioters were actually treated in a more heavy handed fashion or an equally heavy handed fashion to the J sixers. But it strains credulity when you look at the, the numbers and kind of analogous cases. Uh, you mentioned the two Molotov cocktail throwers in New York. There have been other instances. There was an arsonist uh, in Minneapolis who uh, destroyed a building. I believe may have killed several individuals as well. Uh, he got a reduced sentence relative to what the guidelines would have said. And the judge essentially said or acknowledged he was engaging in a in an in a violent effort, but associated with a just one in the you know, social justice, anti-racism riots of the summer of 2020. It's explicit that there is a belief that J6ers were uh, domestic terrorists effectively because they may have. Uh, rioted or engaged in illegal activities and associated with protest for what is perceived to be an unjust cause in the eyes of the law. And conversely, the cause of the summer of 2020 is perceived as the just one by the powers that be. And you see that in the mass of cases that were dismissed for anything that would even resemble like the low level offenses that many J6ers have been hit with, the glorified uh, parading charges picketing around the Capitol. Uh, all those charges were dismissed en masse 
in v- basically every city across America. You do not have the dozens upon dozens of people, some of, sometimes with no criminal records in the past, and sometimes accused of nonviolent crimes being held in pretrial detention. And then you look at also just the, the size and scope and the level of violence associated with those summer 2020 riots, and it's a staggering comparison. And actually, at Real Court Investigations, to talk our book here shamelessly for a second, we did this comparison, January 6th versus 2020 riots, also versus 2017 inauguration riots in D.C., which people forget about, and looked at the size, I scope, don't. and nature. I was living there. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The size, scope, and nature of the offenses, and then the relative prosecutorial and investigative vigor or lack thereof associated with them, and then the claimed abuses of law enforcement um, or you know the prosecutors. And I think that the we let the data speak for itself, but people can draw their own conclusions. And I think that the, from my perspective, the conclusion has to be that people are treated differently based upon their political beliefs. And then you don't have a rule of law in a country if it's selective, if it's conditional. And this builds on, by the way, I think the treatment of Trump-Russia collusion. These these sorts of parallels, we can see this, are staggering. You know, the Mar-a-Lago raid versus the Biden papers. Trump-Russia collusion versus Biden, Russia, Ukraine, China, and probably beyond collusion with his family. Uh, Many such examples just like these. And the people who claim to be the greatest defenders of the institutions are actually the ones eviscerating those institutions when they support this double standard, which is to say a no standard two-tier justice system. What what about the standard going forward? Um, Because regardless of how serious the riots are, um, and I've always resisted calling it an insurrection. I know you have as well. I mean, it Three guys with zip ties does not make an insurrection or a coup. Um, but but these these riots um, provided a impetus for our intelligence services and law enforcement agencies on the federal level to focus on what they call domestic extremism, domestic terrorism, right? There was that famous FBI memo about parents going to, um, going to school board meetings, trying to democratically um, show their, their views about what their children were being taught in public schools. They were branded potential domestic terrorists. Um, You know, what has the apparatus of law enforcement done beyond the actual defendants of January 6th with the categories and the focus uh, that January 6th provided to them? Yeah, I think, let me just frame this up a little bit. So I think that there's one core document and then one statement from an official that I think really captures kind of where we've gone with January 6th in large part used as a pretext for what they already wanted to do, by the way, because remember, uh, the apparatus could cherry pick certain points if they wanted to before January 6th. They would have said the Gretchen Whitmer uh, attempted kidnapping, so-called, which we learned, at least in one court, has been determined to be essentially an entrapment scheme. Uh, but there's been, a, of course, a steady drumbeat of efforts during the Trump years and then subsequent to to portray MAGA as violent and a threat to democracy and our core principles and values and the like. First, it was, you know, that they are all uh, Russian traitors and dupes. And then it became more Nazi-esque. And then it became more domestic terrorist. Um, What subsequent to January 6th, the Biden administration very quickly started talking about maybe we need more domestic terror laws on the books. And they didn't end up going there. But what they did do was they created a national strategy for countering domestic terrorism, which to me is the key underappreciated document that kind of underlies all of the efforts that can be traced to January 6th, but subsequently to use various levers of the administrative state, oftentimes hand in hand with private sector actors to pursue wrong think, whether that's in censorship, whether that's in uh, deplatforming, debanking, the targeting of individuals using the DOJ and beyond. And what that national strategy for countering domestic terrorism says, it's worth reading in its entirety, but one of the parts of it is 
uh, it pledges that there be a whole of government plus, and that means private sector institutions as well, to go about confronting the long-term roots of domestic violent extremism. And it puts at the pinnacle of domestic violent extremism, racially motivated violent extremists with a focus on essentially white nationalists, so-called, even though they're very loose and never define these terms clearly. And we know that, of course, this administration has you know, compared people who believe that you need to show ID to vote to, you know, Bull Connor. Um, and we can go through all the litany of perspectives that are easily twisted to be you know, evil and potentially with a nexus to violence and stochastic terrorism, I guess. But that document calls for confronting long-term contributors to domestic violent extremism. And among them it are those who are undermining our democratic institutions. And it calls for, again, this whole society effort to pursue those individuals. And so obviously that can mean a whole litany of issues potentially constitute threats. If, you, if I raise the idea that the Justice Department and the FBI are, are operating under a two-tier, no-standard justice system, favoring some Americans over others, well, as we know, the FBI and DOJ has come out and said that conspiracy theorists are trying to undermine their efforts and actually ginning up potential violence against authorities, which requires a response. You can see how easily that can be twisted. So this document calls on coordinating with private sector actors, including the big tech companies, by the way, to go about targeting wrong think in this country because they will make the claim that it has, it's relevant to the idea of it undermines our institutions. And if you question those institutions, I put that in air quotes, then you may be threatening them. You may be a threat to the republic. Now, the other quote that I would raise in connection with this, and I'll paraphrase it, is that the head of SISA, which was a little known agency housed within the DHS really prior to the Twitter files for, I think, most Americans, SISA's job putatively is to protect critical infrastructure. It counts under that mandate protecting uh, election infrastructure. And it's basically used that as a pretext to say that the social media companies are, par are part of what needs to be regulated to protect election infrastructure because people use that to challenge the integrity of elections. And that was sort of one of the wedges that was used to go into targeting domestic wrong think going into the 2020 election. Trump-Russia collusion and foreign interference was used as a pretext to target domestic actors prior to that. But the head of SISA said something that should chill every American and that I think so perfectly captures kind of the ethos that undergirds these efforts. And that is, she said that of all infrastructure, our cognitive infrastructure is the most critical. And so that requires essentially combating, quote unquote, mis dis and malinformation. And that gets into, that is basically the ethos, the perspective that has been used to justify mass censorship and suppression of ideas and individuals who hold up views on a whole slew of issues, some of which we'll probably talk about, including election integrity, including gen anything around January 6th, gender to quote unquote, gender affirming care, uh, mutilation of minors, and a whole slew of other issues as well. But the pretext is those who hold views that challenge our favored narrative present a threat to our democracy, so-called. And thus, we can use the tools of the global war on terror and turn them on domestic dissenters. Yeah, I, um, <clears throat> I got a lot of flack on Twitter and elsewhere for saying it was actually a bad thing that they disbanded that disinformation governance board uh, that was going to be headed up by Nina Jankowitz. And, and the reason is I thought that none of these functions are actually going away um they're just not going to be in in one place where like we can track them and try to see what's going on and you're very much confirming this but i, I want to go to the second half of that dichotomy that you put up that before january 6th the nexus was foreign right foreign interference into elections foreign interference um into u.s policy was cast as a um essentially a, in order to use tactics that are usually used at America's foreign enemies on domestic Americans expressing political views um, that were that were deemed quote unquote disinformation or connected to in some way into Russia or or um, America's other enemies. Um, with on that front, let's move a little bit into these Twitter file hearings. 
Um, these are, of course, a series of stories and documents that were doled out to journalists by Elon Musk when he took over Twitter. From the political perspective, I feel like this was the to use uh, that that horrible mm-hmm. uh, DEI uh, dean's language from uh, <laughs> from Stan- from the Stanford University uh, Law School blow up uh the juice was worth the squeeze just for for the the twitter files uh for for the right i think in terms of of the takeover i don't know how elon musk feels about his 44 billion dollars but i think it's worth it (laughs) um since it's not my money anyways um so elon musk doled out a series of of documents to different uh different reporters and he chose mostly reporters who are in the center or coming over from the sort of idw left he gave something something to Barry Weiss. He gave to Michael Schellenberger um, and, and Matt Taibbi, a few others, right? And um, so he, he specifically picked journalists who were not part of mainstream news outlets. So in other words, he didn't give them to the Washington Post or the New York Times, uh, but also not the conservative media, right? So he picked independent journalists who have some still credibility on the left, Um, I think that turned out to be a pretty good decision. But then two of those journalists were called in front of this hearing um, in Congress and, and it was pretty eye opening. So what did we learn from the hearings? Um, What, how, how do the social media companies fit into this narrative, whether it's from external, like built into the sort of external foes of America and, and disinformation from external foes, or whether it's domestic insurrection or domestic terrorism, right? Um, the social media companies and censorship of of Americans expressing political views about our own government and society uh, have been caught up in this. So uh, what did we learn from the Twitter files? Uh, and again, what, what, um, what additional do we learn about how um, censorship actually functions uh, in, in 2023 in America. Yeah, well, first of all, uh, to your point on the tactical and strategic benefit of using what used to be, I, I guess, traitors to their party now as perceived by the left and by Democrats. Uh, one of the things that was really striking within these hearings was that the ranking, well, first of all, let me level set here. Within this was number two of the weaponization committee, which is a subcommittee of the House Judiciary Committee, second hearing associated with this subcommittee. And the Democrat modus operandi within these hearings has been to essentially try to attack the witnesses, uh, attempt to undermine their credibility. And then use that to say that this is, you know, kind of a a joke from Republicans. So the first hearing, they were questioning Jonathan Turley's expertise in talking about fundamental issues pertaining to the law, despite the fact he's, you know, well-respected liberal law professor. And, you know, one of the attacks on him was, well, you know, you're talking about the administrative state, but have you ever worked in the administrative state? Oh, you haven't. You're not allowed to comment on this, Jonathan Turley. In this one, it was even more galling and brazen, the attacks on Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger. The ranking member, uh, Representative Plaskett, called, referred to the two journalists as so-called journalists. And Matt Taibbi took it in stride and shot back perfectly, talking about his bona fides, you know, being a 10-time a 10-time published author, four-time New York Times bestselling author, winner of a whole slew of establishment journalistic awards and the like. And he basically was having none of it. And I think, so to your point, which is worth underlining, it was an inspired choice picking these individuals because Taibbi, and I'm sure Schellenberger as well, as you know, former members of the really liberal left, knew exactly how they would be attacked and they knew how to handle those attacks. And they put on, I think, a master class in dealing with them uh, that maybe those on the conservatives would not have been as shrewd and at knowing how the left would attack them. But that's all a way of saying there's been a politics of personal destruction that Democrats have been engaged in against the Republican aligned, I guess, witnesses of the weaponization committee because they don't want to grapple with the substance. They tried to attack Taibbi and Schellenberger, basically asking them, did Russia interfere with the 2016 election as if it's a cut and dry, a simple yes or no, when it actually requires a little bit more of a nuanced answer, precisely because that was used as a pretext to justify the censorship regime that Taibbi and Schellenberger laid out. And their focus, and Michael Schellenberger put out a very lengthy report on this, is on 
what they call a censorship industrial complex. And I would argue that one component of that is the kind of disinformation industrial complex. Basically, what they show is that there's a mass public-private censorship regime that has existed. Uh, most notably in the 2020 election, we saw the apparatus put into play, but it existed even before then, where you had public sector actors, namely the national security apparatus. This includes State Department entities, uh, entities within DHS, including SISA, like I mentioned, and others working hand in glove, in some cases directly with social media companies to flag accounts and content that they found objectionable for whatever reason. Uh, I put that like that again in air quotes. And then also that they worked with putatively private sector research or academic linked organizations who were used as cutouts. And they essentially, essentially the government fed those organizations accounts or content worth flagging. And those organizations fed it into the likes of Twitter and other social media companies as well. And Basically, the social media companies had the pressure, if they weren't already inclined to do it, and many of them were, of course, to censor and suppress individuals and accounts in a whole slew of ways, obviously not just completely deplatforming or suspending people uh, over specific tweets or censoring specific tweets like the Hunter Biden laptop story, but in a million different ways, algorithmically suppressing wrong think on a whole slew of issues. And we have smoking guns now associated with that mass public private censorship effort. And it indicates that there is, there was a first amendment violation, a rampant mass first amendment violations at play with respect around the 2020 election, with respect to the Chinese coronavirus and any number of elements associated with it. And on a whole slew of other issues as well. And so the Twitter files have exposed that for all to see. I've argued that there also need to be Facebook files and YouTube files and Microsoft files and AT&T files and every single other, essentially, not just social media, but tech company, because the government agencies were having meetings with all of these major enterprises in the run up to the 2020 election associated with, you know, essentially, quote unquote, protecting our critical infrastructure. And so you can see, obviously, like every good tyranny, it's a tyranny for the benefit of its victims. You know, this is about protecting and preserving democracy uh, and a liberal America. But in reality, it's using the most authoritarian and autocratic measures to ensure that one narrative be allowed to be propagated. And that's the favored narrative of our ruling regime. And so, again, it's manifested itself in the censorship and suppression of any narrative, so-called, that conflict with the favored ones of our ruling elites. So I think you, you put it very well in a piece for Real Clear Investigations. You, you called it a, a, quote, largely successful bid by U.S. national security apparatus to manipulate public opinion. Um, and I, I think that that gets right to the point. I think that's a very good description of not only this, but then uh, our third detailed subject. And then we'll we'll pull out again and see, um, you know, what what, if anything, can be done about this, what ought to be done about this, because this is... This is at the most fundamental level, um, completely contradictory to the way that any kind of, let alone a constitutional republic, but even like any kind of small d democratic society um, can operate, right? Uh, that, that essentially very powerful private actors and very powerful government regulatory actors got together on Zoom calls and, and, and um, email chains and decided what the American people can and cannot say with regard to their own political future. Um, the third the third plank of this that I wanted to talk to you about was the, the COVID hearings on, on the origins of, of COVID-19, um, which I thought also had quite a few revelations, again, just confirming a lot of this stuff is just confirming what was, you know, called wild conspiracy theory um, just, just a year ago. And that's both on, on the subject of COVID origins um, but also more generally, all of this stuff, right, suggesting that the U.S. government and private companies are colluding behind closed doors to censor particular Twitter accounts uh, was the sort of thing that uh, sounded really wild eyed even, you know, two or three years ago. And now we have the documentation um, and testimony to confirm that indeed it was happening. And that's, in fact, largely how we're being governed. Um, but so there were these COVID hearings on the origin uh, what did we learn um, from those hearings? Uh, and, you know, what does it say about, um, again, this 
forgetting for a moment the actual truth of what happened with COVID, which we may never be able to tell now, um, the, the, the origin of it, what does it say about this this entire sort of milieu uh, that we've been talking about with regard to January 6th and with regard to um, the, the Twitter files about what information is allowed out, what kind of discussions are allowed um, in in the public square today? Um, and then how how does government, in fact, collude with private actors to make sure that those discussions go one way and not the other? Well, let me make uh, two points at the outset. First, with respect to the many layers of issues surrounding the Chinese coronavirus, whether it's the origins, uh, natural immunity, the efficacy of the vaccines, uh, who was most likely to get seriously infected, uh, alternative uh, therapeutic measures to the vaccines and on a whole slew of other issues. In so many different instances, what was treated as dangerous misdis and malinformation, and we should define what dangerous is, and they never did. They claimed dangerous to public health, but oftentimes it was dangerous to their favored policy prescriptions or their power. In so many instances, what was cast as misdis and malinformation ended up becoming accepted, settled science of our public health establishment. Uh, things that were oftentimes known within the first few months associated with the spread of the virus uh, domestically and across the globe as well. Um, an another point that I would make is, so with respect to lab leak and why was it that, that the likes of Anthony Fauci and others in the public health establishment and then Democrats and then the media were so quick to cast anyone who portrayed lab leak as a legitimate and uh, plausible, if not highly probable, cause of the spread of the virus. And why was the attack so swift? And obviously the, you know, the first, the immediate answer is, well, Donald Trump endorsed it and Tom Cotton endorsed it. So consequently, we need to oppose it. That's kind of the, a simplistic aspect of it. But there are more layers to it than that. So the second kind of argument that was largely put forth was that that's a xenophobic attack, which by the way, I do wonder among those who said that, is it xenophobic even if it's true? Is, and are you not allowed to say it, even if it's true? And the answer is, yeah, probably not. You're probably not allowed to say it if it's true, because there are many things that are true that you're simply not allowed to say uh, because they they slay sacred cows. And with respect to you know, the xenophobic part of it, that was also a political associated effort because it was about portraying you know Trump and Republicans as being anti-Asian. And that fueled that the coronavirus response and rhetoric around it fueled anti-Asian hate in this country, which. You know, obviously, there's a political reason to try to inject that narrative into the bloodstream in the run up to the election. But let's note the irony here. The greatest propagandists and protectors of the Chinese Communist Party here were those who said it was xenophobic and sought to delink the virus from the Chinese Communist Party via the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where, of course, the PLA was operating. And of course, CCP controlled scientists were operating. Uh, so for those who wanted to censor uh, foreign mis, dis, and malinformation, well, in this case, the idea was to censor likely you know, plausible information that actually would have undermined the Chinese Communist Party and the mis, dis, and malinformation they were putting out in association with the Chinese coronavirus. So we should point out that hypocrisy at the outset. But, you know, to kind of lab leak and the treatment of lab leak, uh, it was known very early on that this was potentially a, a legitimate cause. We know now through emails that have been exposed that Anthony Fauci and others at the top of the public health establishment and outside of it were entertaining that theory. But then for some reason, they immediately came down on the side of we need to suppress this and we need to beat it down. And obviously, Nicholas Wade has done some exceptional reporting on Lab Week and the Trump administration itself, via the intelligence community, had put out some public open source information that we can see, uh, pointing to that as a plausible explanation. But why did they want to tamp it down? I would say in part is because obviously U.S. dollars flowed into the WIV associated with gain-of-function research. And that obviously could have been a cause or a contributor to, to what transpired, or at least it's in the ballpark. And that means essentially, I believe that the public health establishment 
felt a need to cover it up, as did others in uh, our government, because there is some egg on our face probably associated with it or possibly associated with it. And so there's a conspiracy of silence and an attempt to protect the WIV, essentially, which is incredibly perverse. Um, if for no other reason, then you need to know what happens to prevent it from ever happening again, period, full stop. Uh, so, you know, the censorship more broadly around the Chinese coronavirus, you know, COVID-19 was an accelerant to the public-private censorship regime as well, because you had public authorities essentially saying that instead of the national security argument of, well, these people who are challenging, you know, questioning election integrity have a nexus to insurrection. So they pose a national security threat. In this case, it was the public health threat. If you put forth unauthorized views that conflict with the quote unquote experts with respect to the Chinese coronavirus, you're going to get people killed. And Joe Biden essentially said that, by the way, when it came to Facebook and I think other entities as well, essentially saying by allowing people to engage in unauthorized thought, you're killing people. So you got to do something about it. And the public health establishment, uh, several bureaucrats within the government, called for uh, the social media platforms to engage in censorship. The White House called for platforms to engage in censorship, all in a bid to point the public towards uh, its favorite outcomes uh, with respect to lab leak in part, but then also with respect to essentially vaccination is the panacea and the answer and everyone needs to get vaccinated and anything, even if it's true information based upon what we've seen in some of these revelations, even if the information is true, if it might cause someone to question whether or not they want to get vaccinated, that's a problem. And that wrong thing has to be purged. So as always with these kinds of tyrannical efforts, it's the guise of national security or public safety or public health are used as the pretext to justify protecting people from themselves. So we have three different bases for this so far, right? We have the foreign interference basis. That's the Russian Russian misinfo, right? Um, propaganda. We have domestic terrorism. And, and we have public health. All three very stretchable in themselves and very loose definitions. Uh, but it also suggests mm -hmm. that nearly anything can be used, right? It's easy to imagine slotting climate change, for example, into this framework and saying that um, any discussion of defending the coal industry is threatening the, the health and the future of the United States because we're all going to die as the clock uh, in, in Union Square in, 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 in uh, New York City says we have just over seven years to live. It's a countdown, doomsday clock. Um, Right. So you could imagine very easily any pet sort of liberal cause or narrative being slotted in uh, to this kind of apparatus that is essentially a, a very fluid and and direct in some ways relationship between government agencies and law enforcement and intelligence services and private companies, tech companies, etc. So one now that we've have we have a lot of information in in the public square about this which is something we didn't really have a year and a half ago right there, this is what we've been talking about is just the last week and a half right um you said there are several smoking guns with regard to the twitter files it seems like there are several smoking guns with regard to all of these things right we have the documentation we have um the the you know testimony under oath in these hearings um and so on and so on we now have the case that this is how the government actually operates. So if that's the case, what is to be done about that? What, you know, what should um, people who are concerned about this be advocating that our representatives in the government do? Um, and, and, you know, sort of what, <laughs> what is the solution to what seems like a very well-oiled machine that can be geared up on nearly any topic uh, that, that, seems to be important to keep, you know, sort of keep Americans on track, uh, or as you said, right, to manipulate public opinion on. And also, I was remiss in noting that there's a revolving door between all of these entities, because an important point, yeah. you have many folks who staff the quote, unquote, trust and safety, quote, unquote, content moderation, i.e. censorship teams within a whole slew of firms that deal in the dissemination of information who themselves worked in at the CIA, the FBI, DHS, 
et cetera. And that's at the top ranks of virtually every major social media company at a minimum. Uh, and so let me go kind of what the, the long-term deeper issue is that has to be combated and then the more narrow one. So longer term kind of, these are all symptoms of what I think uh, is a root cause of a death in the belief in free speech, in actual flourishing, dynamic discourse, challenging one's views, actually getting exposure to a whole slew of them. Because we've said that certain views are so odious that they actually constitute violence themselves. And so thus, the only proper response in a civil society is to silence people. Again, obviously, this is you and I know, and the audience knows this is ludicrous, but this is actually the ethos that prevails. So the campus notion of this speech is harmful, it constitutes violence, and actually literal physical violence is justifiable in response to it, has now, that ethos has now pervaded, matriculated, and graduated into virtually every single institution. And it makes all of our institutions sound a lot like Chinese Communist Party institutions, where under their you know, the Hong Kong national security law, wrong think there is to be combated using public and private sector power. Analogous system that's essentially being implemented here, a social credit system with American characteristics in no small part because those that staff all of these institutions do not believe in free speech or and or cynically, they believe that this is the path to power and perpetuating that power and privilege. So long term, there's the education and assimilating people into a civil society that actually values truly free and open discourse. But and that's gone. And consequently, you see what we have today. Uh, but more narrowly, you know, the first step is obviously exposing the abuses. And frankly, I have been a proponent of this you know, church style weaponization committee since long before it was actually convened. So I'm very glad that Republicans did it. But I've been I, I've essentially tried to be very cautiously optimistic and keep my expectations in check about what to expect from it, precisely because the powers that are implicated in this are so strong that it really requires intestinal fortitude if you are a lowly member of the House to be taking on the FBI or the CIA or the DHS, let alone the major companies, by the way, that are implicated in this mass public-private censorship regime and beyond the censorship regime in the weaponization of all of these agencies, sometimes hand in glove with outside actors against tens of millions of Americans. I mean, obviously, the FBI, the CIA, the NSA and beyond all have dirt on all the individuals who are going to be pursuing them and probing them. And so that's why, obviously, oftentimes, you know, congressmen become captured entities of those industries or sectors or agencies that they're tasked with overseeing. So you know, what is the first, the first point is you have to expose the size, scope and nature of the corruption in all of its manifestations, or at least its most important and salient ones that strike most deeply at our laws and at the core values and principles those laws are rooted in. And then the next part is people have to be held accountable and being held accountable is not just holding hearings and raking people over the coals in a public setting. I think at the end of the day, it has to mean that when you violate the law and this is and the more senior you are, even the, the more grave it is, you have to go to jail. Or if you don't go to jail, there have to be massive, massive penalties imposed on individuals who abuse their powers in ways such as violating en masse the First Amendment rights of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or millions of Americans and obviously, you have to put laws in place beyond those establishing massive penalties that serve as a deterrent. You have to put laws in place to prevent such conduct from ever occurring, even though obviously you know, the First Amendment is pretty strong. That should control. But at the end of the day, there needs to be legislative action. Heads need to not just roll in the way of people being fired, but there have to be criminal penalties associated with such gra grave and massive abuses of power. And then beyond that, there ought to be a massive lawfare uh, brought from outside the legislative branch to make actors pay who go about eroding the foundations of our entire system. And, you know, obviously that erosion 
has manifested itself in a number of ways. It's not just the mass public-private censorship regime. It's also harassment, uh, particularly for the FBI and DOJ, of those who hold the wrong views. You know, we could look at the uh, attempts to go after any lawyers who dared to litigate election integrity-related cases in 2020. And there's a whole mass concerted effort that I've written about uh, whose name escapes me, but there's a whole effort out there to actually go out and disbar all of these individuals, literally ruin them in their communities and make it so that they're unemployable. And I think we should expect that from Donald Trump down to the lowliest, most indefensible actor in January 6th riot, the worst treatment that those individuals face, any of us could face that treatment. And if you're operating with that understanding, then that requires a massive response in kind, commensurate with the assaults that we're seeing. So one of the problems here that you're pointing to is there's no real accountability. Um, So for a lot of these agencies, they're supposed to be directed by the president um, and then overseen by Congress. Uh, And neither of those functions is really happening. Um, So they're not really controlled by the president because um and for the rest and that's hard enough um for all kinds of reasons because you know the right doesn't have it this has really showed up in the donald trump administration right that like all of the people with the appropriate expertise to work in these various bureaucracies were hostile or nearly all of them to the political project of somebody like donald trump um and so it was very difficult even to get the right political pointies in place partially i think to trump's you know, to a, a good critique of Trump, right? Like this, this is in, in part the buck stops with him in terms of political appointees. Like the fact that he did hire a lot of these like sort of establishment folks who were very, very hostile uh, to anything that he wanted to get done. And the latest example of this that I, I heard about, and I, I can't believe it, is that, um, and I won't repeat the the names involved, but um, that there was an effort uh, to um, scuttle a uh a program and not even i don't want to put too much detail into this because i don't want to get anyone in trouble but uh basically even within the trump administration their political appointees stopping political projects because quote-unquote disparate impact on on single black mothers right um which is obviously very contrary uh, ideology uh to to the one that donald trump ran on and, and tried to implement as president but even within his own administration and appointees this was the rationale right um so that's just the tiny percentage of appointees. Below them is the entire iceberg of the administrative state, millions of people who work in the civilian administrative state. That's leaving aside even the Pentagon and so on. Um, there's very little control over them. Uh, and, and I think the, the lack of accountability that you're talking about and, and the the message that it sends when there's no there, nothing happens to these people, even when these smoking guns come out, even when these documents come out. I mean, I think the first person I can think of that... that um, it was like that was Lois Lerner um, back back during the Tea Party, who where the documents came out that that uh, groups associated with the Tea Party had been targeted by the IRS for auditing and and had not been given their certification, rightful certification that they deserved under law as nonprofits. Um, they had been targeted for all kinds of harassment by the IRS, and uh, Lois Lerner testified to this, and um, you know, and basically answered very few questions in Congress and then, you know, was able to, to leave and live her life and was never prosecuted for any of it. And, and furthermore, didn't suffer any, any consequences short of prosecution. Right. Um, so how, how do we, I mean, some of this stuff, it seems to me that it's very, very difficult to prosecute because especially with regard to the FBI, for example, um, a lot of, a lot of it depends on judgment and it's very, very difficult to argue um, in in like a legal sense that somebody execute uh, used their prosecutorial discretion to prosecute case A versus case B, right? Even if you can show that that there are massive disparities based on on political affiliation, like it, it, it just strikes me as something that's very very difficult to actually prosecute. So, what kind of laws would you? suggest get put in place for um at least let's think about something that's slightly easier going forward 
what kind of laws do you think should be in place uh, to, to re-provide some kind of accountability? Because I, I think backward looking, it's going to be really, really difficult to prosecute these people, in part because the institutions themselves are corrupt. So whatever the prosecutorial standard or the best practices standard will be, a lot of these people are smart enough, you know, not to put their toe all the way across the line. And a lot of what they do is is a judgment call. And it's very, very difficult to prosecute somebody for that. So like, how do we change that entire apparatus or or now that it's so clearly become malignant and and political yeah it, it doesn't lend itself to a uh, a simple answer and it's obviously challenging for all of the reasons you mentioned in no small part because every single one of these institutions has a vested interest in perpetuating its power when it comes to congress does Congress want to take control over the administrative state? I would argue at least, obviously, 50% of it would say no. And then what large swaths of Republicans probably in their heart of hearts would say no also because it's much easier to not really have to make tough decisions and instead punt everything to an administrative state to actually serve as effectively a legislative branch. Uh, not to mention, to the extent you try to go about taking on the administrative state, like Chuck Schumer said about the intelligence community when it came to Donald Trump, they get you six ways from Sunday and they're usually powerful and organized. So, uh, look, I think that in in part, you know, the backward looking aspect to your point is incredibly challenging. We are going to see tested, by the way, the limits of this. Uh, again, I, I don't have high expectations, but we'll see how it plays out. Uh, General Mike Flynn is taking on a whole slew of the people who t sought to take him down corruptly in a court case pending right now. We'll see if it goes anywhere. But to your point, obviously, those in the government have, you know, kind of law precedent and the politics in many instances on their side. Now, in his case, it's interesting because there doesn't really need to be all that much discovery because their corrupt acts and targeting him are all out there already. So that'll be a fascinating case study on the, the lawfare side of things. But obviously, there needs to be massive civil civil service reform where a president can actually clean house within the administrative state. The legislative branch obviously ought to try to cut the administrative state down to size and defang it. Maybe there are creative ways that an executive can go about taking control of these agencies. He can create alternative bureaus within the bureaucracy where work is actually done to mitigate the ill effects of those who would try to subvert his policies uh, in kind of old co, the original part of an agency. And so in a new co, essentially, you actually operate. Um, look, if you want to get really creative and out of the box, maybe we have a one-time massive payout offered to those in the administrative state and say, we're going to pay you X to leave. Um, you know, look, in the trade-off of all the problems that we have, would I be willing to increase the national debt maybe to do away with large swaths of the administrative state? Yeah, probably. I think probably many Americans would be too if they knew what the administrative state was doing. So yeah, I think there are creative ways that you can get at this, but I also think um, part of it comes down to executive control over the executive branch. Another part of it comes down to the legislative branch reasserting con control over its proper powers and not delegating them to agencies that, frankly, you know, I think in many instances, Phil Pamberger's argument is pretty much right. These are unconstitutional agencies that have no business existing. And obviously, you know, we're not going to be able to get rid of them, but we have to think about creative ways to mitigate their effects and or harness them towards our favored ends, which includes rolling back the detrimental ones they've been serving. So. That may not be a, a satisfactory answer. Um, it, it, it's certainly not a simple question, We're, and it certainly demands a much more thoughtful and rigorous response. Uh, but I think what you've kind of pointed to is legislative and executive branch both have to reassert their power and prerogative and defang and deconstruct the administrative state. Yeah, I think uh, Andrew Jackson's uh, suggestion of rotation in office, he made everybody submit their resignations every four years, and the president would choose which resignations to uh, to keep and which to, to dismiss. So um, there, there's a lot of there's a lot to recommend that uh, that approach, I think. Um, but thanks so much, Ben Weingarten, for coming on High Noon. You can find Ben's work at Real Clear Investigations, where he is editor at large. He's also a columnist for The Federalist and Newsweek, as well as Epoch Times. You can find his work at all of those places. 
He's also the author of a book called American Ingrate about Ilhan Omar, which you should check out. Um, and he's he's on with me every every week on uh, NatCon Squad. So if you want to check out that podcast, highly recommend. Um, so, Ben, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.